Scriptures, Romans 11, verses 29 through 36. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God is consigned to all disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to look into your word this morning. Father, we pray that we can take comfort in these words. Regardless of what we might have thought about your plan up until this point in time, let us focus upon glorifying you this morning, upon accepting and acknowledging that your plans are perfect in every way and ours are not. And Father, I pray the words that I speak be not mine, but be of you. And I ask that your spirit, that he would enlighten and illuminate our hearts and minds to your word. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. We are actually going to wrap up Romans 11 this morning. We've been on the chapter for several months, or actually several weeks. It's been over a month, I know, on Romans 11 that we've been looking at it. But before we get there, I want us to reflect a little bit from where we've come and what we've looked at and, and, and how we've looked at it. We've seen Paul write about a hardening of the Jews. And that hardening of the Jews was from God and from his hand. Now, the, group, the Jews were a group of people that sought God, and yet they were hardened. They tried to find God, but yet they rejected the Messiah, and God hardened them. He hardened them because, as we saw, they sought to establish their own righteousness. And when they sought to establish their own righteousness through keeping of the law, they didn't recognize God's righteousness. And that's important, an important thing for us to remember is to be able to understand to the extent that we can God's righteousness and his requirements of us. They failed to believe that God would save them by grace. They thought it was up to themselves to save their own. That by keeping of the law and the keeping of his commandments, living a good life, then they would be saved. But it didn't work out that way. That only came to their hardening. They constructed a God of their own making, of their own choosing. When they sought their own righteousness, who got the glory from that righteousness? Themselves. And that's what happens. When we think that we can be saved by being good or doing certain things or refraining from doing other things, then that glory falls on us 
and we are undeserving of that. And as a matter of fact, the Jews were cut off because of that. They were hardened. Now, we know that they're not going to be cut off forever. That this hardening or this blinding of the Jews will not be forever. But yet under God's plan, the Jews were hardened and the Gentiles were grafted in. And God saved us Gentiles by grace through faith. And we've looked at all that. But there's a warning to the church that Paul gave us, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago. He said, don't be conceited or arrogant toward the branches that were broken off, but were broken off. Because if you become conceited or arrogant to the branches, you can be broken off too. And we'll, I'll regraft or graft back in those branches that were broken off. I fully believe that that's going to happen. That that will happen before and during the time that the Jews are grafted back in. The church is going to become self-righteous, arrogant, and haughty. Not only toward the Jews, but toward everyone else. And that's a danger that we have, and I believe that eventually it will happen. Because we can see it beginning to happen. The church will construct a God of their own making, a God that we want Him to be, right? And the church will redefine what that God looks like. Just like the Jews redefined what God looked like. And they were cut off. The church is redefining God into someone they want Him to be. That regardless of what the sin is, if we all can just accept it and say that it's okay then we're going to make a God that believes that. And that's a path that leads to one way, or leads to one thing. It's not a path to eternal life. It's a path to hell and destruction. And it's a path that the church will end up becoming hardened and blinded. And we construct that God, and we make Him what we want Him to be, and before long, we're broken off, and the Jews are grafted back in. And we can see that, right? We can look out in the world and in our country today and we can see the churches that are doing that. They're constructing the God of their own making, of their own choosing. The God that accepts them regardless of what His Word says. In spite of what His Word says. The God of all love that would never do this I mean, after all, we are trying to live a good life. God certainly won't send me to hell for whatever this may be. That's not a God of the Bible. It's a God that you've made up or the church has made up. It's a folly. It's a lie. And I fully believe that that is the pattern and the map of how the church will be cut off and the Jews will be grafted back in. We talked about last week the fullness of the Gentiles. And when the last Gentile that was appointed to eternal life believes, then that will be the fullness of the Gentiles, and then the Jews are going to come back in. Don't think that all the churches are going to stop existing at that time. You will have those churches that have constructed their own God of their own choosing that will continue to exist. 
and continue to perpetuate this lie. And it is at that moment they're cut off. And it is at that moment that they're hardened. It is at that moment they can't see the real Messiah. Because he will be made visible only to the Jews who will recognize him for what he is, come back in and glorify God. So the churches that don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, cut off. The churches that don't believe in the miracles of the Bible, cut off. The churches that say that you'll be okay no matter what you do, you can continue in sin and grace is going to abound, cut off. The churches who embrace sin, cut off. The church cannot parade Jesus around as a harlot and think that it will be rewarded. Judgment will come, and that judgment will be in the form of being cut off, being blinded, and not being able to see the true Messiah. I wanted to make that observation as we've looked at the early part of that in this chapter before we get into today's scripture because today's message kind of plays off of that and from that. And you see the title, For His Glory, and this morning's passage reiterates the glory of God. And that's why I played that praise song. We praise the God that gives and we praise the God that takes away. We ask God to take away the rain and whenever it's still raining, we're still going to praise Him. Because just because it's raining doesn't make Him any less wonderful and marvelous than what He was before. And that's difficult for us to grasp, especially in today's society. We want God to be what we want Him to be and we want Him to do what we want Him to do and then we'll praise Him. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the eternal creator of heaven and earth. So the glory of God is the culmination of everything we've been studying through chapters 9, 10, and 11 that's looked in depth at salvation, at election, at the calling of Israel, at the grafting in of the Gentiles, and finally at the regrafting of the Jews. It all revolves around the glory of God. Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is what? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we were created, okay? I wasn't created to be a judge. I'm that, but that's not the reason I was created. I was created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, you can do that in your vocation, and I strongly recommend that's what you do. But that is the very reason that you draw breath, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if you're not doing that, you're not living out the reason you were created. Clearly, He creates us all to do different things in our vocations. But by and large, the very reason that you were created in those vocations is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Romans 1, way back, years ago, we looked at Romans 1, 
warned us what happens when we don't do that. We trade the glory of God of an image of an image of an image that resembles fallen man. And then he gives us over to that depraved mind. You remember that. If we don't glorify him, then we are seeking glory for ourselves. And that's basically what had happened to the Jews. They got so caught up in the keeping of the law and living out the minutia of the law that they thought they could make it on their own. And whenever they do that, then that glory falls squarely on their shoulders and they traded the glory of God for the glory of themselves, of being holy and righteous, or what they thought was holy and righteous. So God gave them what they wanted. They wanted that glory. He said, fine, you can have that glory, but I'm hardening you. I'm blinding you to the Messiah, and there's going to be a price to pay. You steal my glory, that's fine. But you're not going to get eternal life. And that's what happened. But he's going to revisit them in the future. And we've seen that there is a future eternal life that awaits the Jews. But many generations suffered and were lost eternally because of that. Many, many generations of Israelites because of that. And in like manner, if the church goes that route to where it's arrogant and proud, then it also will be lost. It also will be blinded and hardened if we glorify ourselves as a church bad things are coming the whole salvific plan of God revolves around glorifying him that's it that's the very way that he made salvation it glorifies him we benefit but it glorifies him and that's the way that he set it up it is for his glory the question then becomes is how is it we glorify God How do we glorify God? Don't think that by glorifying God, we're adding to or giving Him anything that He needs. He needs nothing. We can't give Him anything that that He desires, so to speak. No, by glorifying God, we are recognizing all that He is and that He is deserving of being glorified that he is deserving of being praised, that we are giving credit to him. That's what it means to glorify God. Give him credit for all wonderful, beautiful, great things that he has done and continues to do. Now, is glorifying God a bad thing? No. It's basically what we're commanded to do. Why is that? Because he alone is worthy of being glorified. And that's something that we have to understand. And it's hard for us to get our our minds around that. Because we tend to balk at people that want to be glorified, don't we? When we see someone that's seeking glory, it just doesn't fit well on their person. I mean, it is repulsive, at least in my eyes. I am repulsed by someone that, that fits that mold. Seeking glory just isn't worn well. Why is it so repulsive? Or why is it so distasteful? It is repulsive or distasteful because no one's worthy. That's the reality of it. 
No one is worthy. When you boil it all down, there is no human being that is worthy of that glory. Only one has ever been. We think of the best sports figure and glorify them. But it's short-lived, is it not? It's extremely short-lived. They may revel in that glory when they're in their 20s and 30s, but what about 40? Mm. 50? No. 60? Heavens no. 70? It doesn't get any better. That glory is short-lived. The most beautiful model. 20s, 30s, well, then we get to the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. It's very passing. The glory that we receive is passing very quickly. And we are not worthy of receiving any type of glory for that. Even in their prime. Even in their prime, the best baseball players that have ever lived fail. Right? You're in the Hall of Fame if you succeed one out of every three times at bat. That's a lot of failure. That means you fail two-thirds of the time you're up there. So even at their best, they still fail. They still struggle. They're still not worthy of our glory. Impressive is the one that it is the same and successful at a million years of age as they were at 25. Impressive is the one that never fails under any circumstance, regardless of age or anything else that may accompany them. Impressive is not the one that can hit 400, but the one that can speak light into darkness. Impressive is the one that can speak life out of death, can make something from nothing. That's impressive. That's someone that we can glorify. That's someone that we should glorify. The one who is perfect in any way, every way. God deserves glory because He is glorious. Because He is perfect in every way. He has batted a thousand from eternity past to eternity future. We'll never make a mistake. We'll never have to go, at, go back and redo a screw-up or a failure. As I was preparing this, the sense or the feeling of how inadequate or how poor of a job I do at glorifying God became a little overwhelming. How much time do we spend doing that? Just be honest with yourself. How much time do you spend glorifying God for who He is and what He is and all that He does in every way that He goes about doing it? I'm guilty. Horribly so. And it was just an overwhelming sense of needing to repent. Sure, I glorify sports figures all the time. Whatever it may, whoever it may be. And they're failures. 
utter, complete failures. And I spend so little time glorifying God for all of His perfection, of everything that He does, and every way that He does it. When we compare the time that we spend glorifying God with the amount of time we spend asking Him for things, wow. Testimonies, praises, and prayer requests. Look at those. How much time do I spend praising, glorifying God, and how much time do I spend, help me, God, help this person, help that person? It's overwhelming. And yet we were created for what? We weren't created to ask Him for things. We were created to glorify Him. But we fail. Miserably so. We fail. In this morning's message, Paul is celebrating God's truthfulness to his word. Remember when we started this out, we were left with a question of whether or not God keeps his promises for the Old Testament, from the Old Testament. That was the ultimate question. And Paul, in this passage that I read a while ago, and we're going to look at it again, glorifies him for doing so. And it is all for his glory. It sure did seem that God's word was failing. It sure did seem that the promises he made to the Jews were not going to be kept for the Jews. They didn't believe in the Messiah and they still don't. Yet we know how that's not correct going forward in the future. We've spent the last few months looking at how God's going to redeem his people those he foreknew. We know that some of those promises were kept in the church, but others will be kept in this actual Israelites or Jewish nation. Nevertheless, God is perfectly trustworthy in every way, and that's what Paul is telling us. Verse 29, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be withdrawn, what Paul means by irrevocable. That God's going to remain faithful to his word, remain faithful to his promise, regardless of what we do or don't do. He's going to fulfill his promise in every single way. We may not be able to see it or we may not be able to understand it, just like it was difficult for the Jews to understand or for the Gentiles to understand what happened to the Jews. I mean, we started out with Abraham and you come all this way and here we are in the New Testament and they're gone, except for a remnant. They couldn't understand that, they couldn't see that, but God had it. I got this, I made that promise, don't worry, I'll keep that promise. We still wouldn't understand if not for Paul writing Romans 11. God is 100% faithful to his word. Always has been and always will be. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So the Gentiles were disobedient. 
but he showed them mercy. And how did he show them mercy? Through the disobedience of the Jews. So he went and called the people that were not his people, his people. Us, Gentiles. Why did he do that? Because those people that were not his people would glorify him. End of story. The Jews were not glorifying him, they were glorifying themselves. So he sought a group of people that were not his, and they glorified him. And that was the very reason. Verse 31. So they too, being the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you they may also now receive mercy. So the Jews have been disobedient, but God's yet going to show them mercy. He's going to demonstrate his mercy to them. And we talked about that last week. Just like he showed mercy to us, the Gentiles, he is going to show mercy to them, the Jews. And I will assure you that when that happens, he will be glorified. That they will glorify him once again. Verse 32. Verse 32 is a specific example of what I'm talking about, about not being able to understand it. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. The word consigned means imprisoned. So we have God imprisoning both the Jews and the Gentiles to disobedience. Now when we look at this, does anybody have a problem with that? Be honest. Does anyone think that that's inherently unfair? Can I have another vote? That's right. That's unfair, God. You have imprisoned us to disobedience. Why would a loving God do that? And so that's where a lot of churches want to take that and change it around and make their own God of their choosing because a loving God would never imprison us to disobedience. But that's not the God of the Bible. God has imprisoned everyone to disobedience. So I'm telling you that a loving God is God, that he is a loving God, and this is exactly what he does. We must accept the God of the Bible, not because he's our creation, but because he's demonstrating his characters and attributes to us through his word. And we must push back on that desire to construct a God of our own choosing or a God that we think would be a better God. Why did he do this? Why did he imprison everyone to disobedience? We talked about it in Sunday school. To demonstrate his mercy. If everyone wasn't disobedient, we'd have no idea what his mercy even looked like, right? If we all weren't deserving of hell, then who would ever need to be saved? And so then, whenever we're all disobedient and we see that, and he pours out his mercy on us, we realize what he saved us from. Then what naturally flows from that? We glorify him. We glorify him. 
We've benefited because we've been saved from what we deserve, eternal damnation. We've gotten eternal life, and God has been glorified. It's part and parcel of how God works. It's how he demonstrates his mercy to us. So even though he tells us that he imprisons everyone to disobedience in order to have mercy on us all, something just still gives us heartburn with that. Well, I want you to hold on to that till we get to verses 34 and 35. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Now, Paul has just said that God has imprisoned everyone to disobedience and the next thing out of his mouth is, oh, the depths and riches of his wisdom. He's glorifying God for imprisoning us all into disobedience. That's how we should be looking at it. That's the proper way to be looking at that. Instead, we don't. We think God is being unfair and unjust and mean by imprisoning, imprisoning, whew, that's tough for me this morning, us all in disobedience. Not Paul. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of his knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. God is glorified. Paul is glorifying God in moments when everybody else would say, I don't know who he is or what he thinks he's doing because I could have done it better. In verse 25, Paul told us that he didn't want us to be ignorant of the mystery. The mystery of the salvation of the Jews and what was going to happen to the Jews. And so he gives us or enlightens us on that mystery. And he tells us that some have been excluded because they've been hardened, they've been blinded by God. And that mercy has come to the Gentiles. And we get to see behind the curtain on how God worked that out. And exactly what he did. And then Paul tells us in verse 33 there how much wisdom was in that. And knowledge and how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. On our own, without Paul enlightening us, we would have no idea and no understanding of the plan of God for Israel or for the Jews, for that matter, and for the Gentiles and how that's going to play out going forth. But we see here that his ways are rich and deep, yet we had no idea what was going on. But we like to sit back in armchair quarterback, don't we? That's part of our fallen nature. We love to armchair quarterback. We love to look at our government at whatever stage it is and think that we can do a better job. Right? Doesn't matter who's in the office or a office or wherever it is, we sit back and say, if I'd have been there, I'd have done it differently. But you weren't there. Furthermore, you don't know everything that's going on. We have no idea all the ins and outs of everything that's happening. We don't. We want to make that look very simple. We want to think that we know absolutely everything that's at stake, all the risks that are involved when a decision is made regardless of what it is, and we want to think that we could have done a better job. 
We do it every day. It's part of our fallen nature. We do the same thing with God, right? We do the same thing with God. We, we see just a little portion of reality. And we think, well, we could have done it better. God's job is way more difficult than any leader in the world would be. There's a lot more things going on, and it's way more complex, but we see this idea that God has imprisoned us to disobedience, and we think, that's unfair. It's not. It's perfect. It's perfect in any way. Why? Because he's God, and he's making every perfect decision. That's the reality of it. We tend to armchair quarterback God. Paul didn't. Paul said something that was very difficult to swallow, and he glorified God immediately with it. How unsearchable are his ways and inscrutable are his judgments. Verses 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Both of these are quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 34 comes from Isaiah 40. And it's a beautiful chapter about the greatness of God and the sovereignty of God and how he has instructed the oceans and given them boundaries and they can't come any further. It's beautiful. It's also a quote from Job. Remember everything that Job went through and how all of his buddies come and told him that he was doing bad things and Eliphaz, his friend, wrongly castigated him and ask him, who has been, have you been God's counselor? Do you give God advice? And verse 35 is also from Job. This time it was Elihu who was wrongfully condemning Job as well. Do you give him gifts and that he's going to repay you? You have nothing that God wants. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's mind and his ways are so much more complex than ours. And he's dealing with so many different facets of things that we can't see. We would never understand his plan for the Israelites had Paul not revealed it to us. We would never understand or be able to see election in chapter 9 and how all that plays out had Paul not revealed it to us. And yet, we want to sit in judgment of God. It's a dangerous thing. It's an extremely dangerous thing for us to do. So Paul asks us, do you know the mind of the Lord? The answer is obvious, no. Do you give him advice? The answer is obvious, no. He doesn't ask for my advice. Nor would I want God to ask for my advice, to be quite honest with you. Nor have I given him a gift, or we have given him a gift to be repaid. Verses 34 and 35 are just Paul's way of demonstrating to us how very small we are and how little we add to anything in this world. How big God is. 
and how perfect his ways are. And finally, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. The culmination of chapters 9, 10, and 11. After he's described for us what election is, we've described for us what, how the Gentiles came into salvation and described for us how the Jews will again come into salvation. This is what Paul says. The plan's perfect! His plan is absolutely perfect. Why? Because it's God's. End of story. That's faith. That's trust. That's knowing that we don't know what God's dealing with. We don't know the fullness of God's ways and everything that he has to deal with. God is sovereign in all things. He is at the center of the universe, not us. But when we're selfish or self-centered or we like to armchair quarterback, then we push him off the throne. We take the throne ourselves and glorify ourselves. And that doesn't work. When we question God's plan, then we can't quote verse 36 the way Paul did. Paul takes his plan, he accepts his plan, and he glorifies God for that plan because it is perfect in every way. We mustn't steal his glory. To him be glory forever. So, as we've seen Paul lay out this salvific plan for both the Jews and the Gentiles, know that that plan and everything about God revolves around his glory. And I would ask that we as a church focus our attention on glorifying him. Focus our daily lives on giving God glory for all that he is instead of just passing over that and, and basking in that glory and thinking, well, that's just part of life. It's not. It's not. He's shown us mercy and grace and love that we don't deserve. So let's glorify him as we never have. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your words that Paul gave us here in Romans 11, and we thank you for the study through 9, 10, and 11, and they've been so illuminating. Sometimes it's been difficult for us to fully embrace them, to swallow them, let alone understand them, Lord. But at the end of it all, we know that we are not you. We don't understand what you're dealing with, and we'll never understand that fully. But we know that you're a good God, that you love us, and you're working it all for our good. And help us to just take your words, to sear them into our minds and hearts, and trust you. Trust you in the wonderful times and trust you in the bad times. Glorifying you in both of those moments, no matter what may come, no matter how bleak the future may look, we want to praise the God that gives and the God that takes away. To you be the glory forever. Amen. All rise.